Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we are concluding our coverage of Wolfe's first novel, Operationaries, published in 1970. Today, we are absolutely thrilled to be joined by the Hugo-nominated Wolf scholar Mark Aramini. Mark is the author of Between Light and Shadow, which explores Wolf's early fiction and which you have heard us talk about an awful lot. It's an amazing work of scholarship. Mark also has a number of YouTube videos about Wolf, and if you haven't checked out his work, you really should. And of course, we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. So, Mark, can you tell us kind of how you got started on Between Light and Shadow and, and Wolf scholarship in general? Sure. Well, Wolf scholarship started a long time before Between Light and Shadow. The, the Earth List in you know the late '90s, early 2000s had been kind of the only source online for people to talk about Wolf. And if any author demands you know that you get an outside opinion on it, I feel like it is Gene Wolf. And so I've been posting on that regularly since the late '90s. Um, and actually when I was in grad school, I found an author database. Now I'd been reading Wolf since like the fourth grade. I, a friend of my father gave him a box of books from the science fiction book club and the claw of the conciliator was in there. So I had to find shadow of the torture. And, uh, so I started reading it and even though I didn't understand everything, I just, there was some resonance there with the way that I thought, the way that I felt about so many things. And I was so fascinated by it that he quickly became my favorite author. And so when I was in grad school, I found this database with, um, authors and their addresses. And so on a long shot, I wrote Gene Wolfe, um, in about 2000, 2001, this was, and he wrote me back and we started just writing back and forth. So I have you know, more than a decade and a half of correspondence with him. But, you know, it, it seemed like it, he wouldn't answer questions about his work very much. That's just the way he is. Right. Um, <laughs> so he would answer other questions, you know, and talk about his life. And I feel like we did become something very close to friends. And he's just a very generous and awesome guy. And it's, it's such a wonderful feeling to know that your heroes are just great people. And um, so in any case, let's fast forward here to 2012. Uh, over like the St. Patrick's Day weekend in 2012, sh- uh, the Chicago Fuller Award Ceremony was honoring Gene Wolfe with kind of their first annual award. So I flew out there to attend it over, you know, the course of a weekend. And so I was at this beautiful, I think the San Filippo estate and um, Wolf was there, you know, and I saw him and I, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm Mark Armini. It was the second time we'd met face to face and someone heard my name. And they recognized it. And I was like, wow, I'm in Chicago, you know, thousands of miles from where I live. How do people know me? Even though obviously Wolf Scholarship is not that huge. But then I realized that some of my writing online was actually reaching an audience. And so I was talking with a lot of the fans there, like James Wynn and Michael Andre Driussi, um, Michael Swanwick. Um, you know, those should all be fairly familiar names if you've looked into the, the, the Wolf archives and oh, into yeah. the science community. Right. And um, so... I'm talking to him and they say, you know, his early fiction really hasn't been explored very much at all. It's always about new sun, new sun, new sun. I was like, yeah, I think when I go home, I'm going to start chronologically and just go through everything because I did happen to have all of his short fiction that I've collected over the years. So I just started writing and posting on the Earthnet. And about 60 stories in, I realized, wow, this this has been such 
I don't want to say a pain in the butt to do, but I mean, it was such a burden of work that I realized that I should probably try to get it published. And so then I had to go back and kind of reformat everything and get it in a, a uniform format and go from there. So it was, I mean, I'm still, I'm still working on the project. I have six more essays left of like 250 short stories and 30 novels. I have six essays left to finish everything that he's written up to this point but it's been you know it's been a long time since saint patrick's day 2012 yeah that's so. <laughs> absolutely incredible mark i didn't realize that that i mean that's a i don't know five six year project of, of cataloging yeah. all this stuff and i mean your readings are always incredible even even though there's perhaps some disagreement out there uh, on, on oh i'm, your sure, readings. I'm sure there yeah. is yeah. yes definitely yeah, I've seen I've seen some of like the comments on Reddit and uh, on our own forums as well. But I mean, your contributions are just unmatched, and we're really grateful for them uh, as Thank readers you. of you and readers of Wolf. Yeah, and we'll be excited to get to get the the, the finished project. Uh, I think I think that will be a, a, an occasion for a party if ever there was one. Oh yeah, I mean it got to be a long party, and I'm not going to write for a while after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll look forward then maybe to, to filling your your writing time with uh, with having you back on the podcast. Excellent. Our plan for today is to dis- discuss three broad aspects of Operation Ares, and, and, and they are this. The first thing we want to talk about is the political ideology that really dominates uh, the, the themes of this book. But we also want to talk about the Christian symbolism. This is something that uh, certainly fascinated me, but has also really puzzled me as we've been going through it. And I, I w- would really love to, to discuss that. And then the final thing we'll want to talk about is the, the craft of writing the book. And, and this is, I think, where we'll spend the bulk of our time. And, and this is where we're going to get to see Mark's particular scholarly approach in action. And so we're, we're pretty excited for that. So I was particularly interested in finding here in Operation Ares, one, that Wolf was very interested in political ideology to begin with. It's not something that I had particularly noticed in uh, much of Wolf's work, uh, the solar cycle uh, and other you know, other important works as being a dominant theme. So I was very interested, uh, but also very puzzled perhaps to, to find it here. But I also was interested in the fact that his political ideology in Operation Ares seemed to be more conservative, further to the right than what I had been inferring from some of his stories uh, from really the same time that he's writing this. And so I think, Mark, we'd really enjoy if you could shed some light uh, on on this topic for us, you know, about Wolf's own journey with political ideologies, why he was concerned about or why he wanted to write a political novel to begin with, uh, why he went away from writing political novels, and and really, maybe if anything, actually did shift in his political ideology. Okay, great. And I'd actually like to start with the quote from Gene Wolfe himself. Um, this appeared in Joan Gordon's um, little biopic on Gene Wolfe, where he actually talks about some of his own um, political views here. He is a Catholic in the real communion-taking sense, which tells you a lot less than you think about my religious beliefs. I believe in God, in the divinity of Christ, and in the survival of the person. Like every thinking person, I'm still working out my beliefs. Politically, I'm a maverick. I agree with the far left on many issues, with the far right on others, with the center on still others. I distrust concentrations of power, whether political or economic. I'm a strong environmentalist. I believe that we are higher creatures than we think we are and that animals are closer to us than we believe. And so one of the possibilities that we have to consider in any wolf 
work is that he's being ironic. And so there's a scene in Operation Ares where kind of the, the, the Martian um, invasion, we'll call it, even though it's not really an invasion, <laughs> first appears. And they're starting to fire on people. And someone says, someone might be killed. And John Castle says, I sincerely hope so. Well, you know, you have to ask yourself, is this really Wolf speaking? Is this the character? Is this character free? Is he ideologically clear? And I think one of the things about Operation Ares is that the character is going all over the place trying to find the right answer. So those concentrations of power, can any of them really be trusted or any of them valid on the surface? Or does power kind of innately corrupt? And I think that was some of the examination that Operation Ares was looking at, because as we can see, he goes all over the board, um, you know, whether he's working as in uh, the welfare office, basically as a pressman or whether he is um, in China. Right. Looking at at the military might there and their kind of set up and system, even after they invite kind of the Russians over. He's always there looking at what's going to work and what will actually be just to the most people. And is that utilitarian? I mean, is that something that, you know, Wolf wants to go to? I think this text was trying to deal with what is the best for the most people. And is that spiritual? Is that material purely? And I think that's always interested Wolf. But, and I'll, I'll stop after this little bit here, one of the um, great mysteries of science fiction sometimes is that the more specific you are to a time and place, the more dated that the material appears. And I think Wolf realized that almost as soon as this was written. And so he decided to remove himself from that really direct ideological political examination to something that was going to last the test of time a little better than Operation Ares has, in my opinion. That's fantastic. That really answers a, a question that I have about the structure of the novel, which um, is going to jumping ahead to our craft conversation a little bit. Castle is always meeting with the highest authority he can in each of these organizations that he ends up being a part of. And I, I kind of encountered that as a bit of um, Wolf exploring structuralism as a technique. But I think your reading is is far more clear and, and kind of understands the mode of the novel a lot better. Now, I, I, we might as well talk about this a little bit since you brought it up. If you notice in the opening chapter, he is playing chess with the captain, right? And the captain will be promoted eventually to um, a general or something like that. Right, you know, he'll right. skip multiple ranks. He's like, congratulations on skipping over lieutenant colonel. And, <laughs> right. You know, and so he, he becomes like this high-ranking official because he was wrong when he said that Castle was in charge of Ares, but eventually that lie becomes the truth. So, you know, he, he happened to become right eventually, and so he jumped all these steps. But the novel itself, I think, was initially intended to be structured after a chess game where Castle was the rook moving all over the board, right? Because even the, the geographic location of the novel, he's in New York City when he leaves White City, right? He's in New York City. Then he's in Texas. Then he's in China. So he's got these long, straight moves from one political area and ideology to another across the board. And so I do feel like he did structure it around um, that straight movement from one to the next of a chess game. But he makes a statement when he's playing with the captain that I think never comes to fruition. Um, he says, you don't understand the use of the clergy, which would be the use of the bishops, right? And the captain says, you don't understand knights. And so in this metaphor, this kind of, I think, 
really shows how the novel was supposed to be structured, but I don't think it quite came off as Wolf intended. And we'll talk about the reason why later. Yeah, I'm going to take this opportunity, Mark, to jump on on your invocation of this comment in the chess match to to move us into this second category, which is John Castle and Christian imagery. And I was really fascinated uh, by all of the Christian imagery here, uh, particularly this line in the chess match, but of course also just the initials of John Castle being J.C., Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, that's certainly not accidental. And uh, an awful lot, especially in the first chapter of imagery from the Noah story from the book of Genesis, including character names, uh, the use of doves and olive branches as motifs. Also, uh, the ark that brings these uh, these African animals to uh, basically these these um, animal preserves that are sort of functioning as an ark that we have in chapter one. But I was I really was struggling with what what to make of that Christian imagery here. And in particular, what the question of whether or not John Castle is a Christ figure. And I think that's a a wonderful question. And since, you know, I don't know whether you guys have discussed this yet, but the cuts that occurred to this novel, especially in the second half, I feel destroyed a lot of that religious imagery. I've had the opportunity during my Wolf Scholarship to see several adaptations of um, Shadow of the Torture, and I won't put any real details, but I can always tell when the person who's writing, you know, the adaptation or the script or whatever is not a mystic, you know, because those parts that are most mysterious are left out. And so the second half of this novel was not edited by Wolf. It was edited by Berkeley books and they cut out a significant portion that I feel if they were not mystically inclined at all, just vanished into thin air. So I I don't know that we're ever going to be able to answer that question, but there are some features of Castle that really resonate with later holy men in Wolf. Even though he's a scientist and a teacher and is not involved at all with the church, as far as we can see, um, he falls from a great distance. He hurts his leg. This is the same thing that happens to Patera Silk in Book of the Long Sun. Um, there's, There's so many small things that are repeated. And He's used in this strange uh, ritual with the hunters, right, with Tia Marie. And she's probably the closest thing we're going to get to a religious symbol. And so you see some strange syncretism there. Um, One of the things that's most fascinating about that is that lion imagery. Now, you know, a lion can be associated with um, St. Mark. It can also be associated with Christ. But it doesn't seem to be anything but a trick, in this one, you know, it jumps and then it disappears. And so I don't know that Castle ever actualizes as a full Christ figure, even though he does try to save that character on the rooftop there. And he doesn't, um, he doesn't ever give in to graft, you know, his, his motives are never evil, but they're also kind of materialistic at times. And so I don't think that the Christ imagery on a spiritual level ever comes to fruition throughout the novel, in my opinion. I have to wonder with the way that uh, Wolf is so committed to kind of undermining tropes of the the hero's journey, kind of the classic hero's journey of science fiction and, and fantasy novels. If sometimes readers are missing the point, as I sometimes suggest to Glenn, by looking... <laughs> too much to specific Christ imagery and to just see where the hero's journey could be overlaid instead. This novel ends with a real fizzle 
for me like a a whimper i think i said in our last episode <laughs> uh where the the promise of john castle is never really fully recognized and his is his hope to become free from all of this and this meeting with the last president is his ability to become free or is he meant to go on to greater things like that that's kind of the question i have about john castle as hero instead of his christ figure and this could even be taken on to to kind of the larger wolf novels his picaresque heroes like silk and and uh and severian as you mentioned i i think in this the first chapter was the most fully realized chapter um, because it was a short story, right? The laughter outside in the dark, I think, that was submitted to Orbit. And then Damon Knight encouraged him to expand it into a novel. And so I think that a lot of the fully complete imagery that was intended by Wolf was in that first chapter. Um, if you notice, there's there's a scene in it where he runs into the barn and then these animals are chasing him. He lets them into the barn. He releases a horse to distract them. He allows himself to be captured and, and then captured, and then he seems to betray his his friend. David, he seems to betray his friend, but he's really delivering the message. And so if you look at this later on, when you see what these authority figures are doing, right, they're allowing Russia in, they're allowing China in, um, kind of into the barn, as it were. And Castle seems to be betraying some of the principles that he was serving, only to actually serve them more fully. And so there is kind of this complex metaphorical metonymy or synecdoche that's written into that first chapter that is played out over the course of the book. And so I think that just as the first chapter ends in a fizzle that serves the people who've been damaged, right, um, who are ultimately in, if they're represented by uh, Jaffet, are ultimately intended to be the future, right, the, the people themselves more than the concentration of power. And so, uh, you know, in the Noah myth, right, Japhet becomes the dis- the ancestor of the European people um, and the East Asian people. So his he's not just a figure of being a cripple or only in the Noah story. He's a figure of, of a progenitor of an entire branch of people, not the Semitic people, but um, something that stands for a much greater p- whole than his than his part. Right, and that could go to speak to why he's a wakey, and even that's like super unexplored in Operation Ares. Right. This like class of mutants, but that is uh, that is a really eye opening explanation of why that's in there and what that represents, and and that kind of leads me to believe there is some real structuralism at play in this novel. Oh yeah, I think Wolf always writes his novels with a very careful structural intent, and and I almost. I don't want to say it's a heavy-handed symbolism, but it's an atavistic, animalistic symbolism in here. So, for example, in um, what is it, the house where delight lives, right? You have right. that metallic serpent snatching at the rabbit, and then these moles undermine the entire thing, and it turns over. I mean, that has to be a symbol of something that's going on there with either the the Russian right? People that are there or, or the ideology involved. But yet it's so difficult to put your finger on exactly what that is. Um, because just like the hyena dream, right? He has the dream of the hyena jumping at the boy and then he's struggling with it and he wakes up or the significance of the lion. These things are there for a purpose, but I don't think they were ever fully realized probably because of the heavy cuts that happened in the second half of this novel. 
yeah, I think we're kind of fully into the the craft conversation at this point. Right. So I do want to ask you, you know, it seems like you have a an idea about what was lost in the editing process. And, and, and that sounds to me like this symbolism that was left hanging was never fully developed because the editors missed it. Oh, yeah, I, I completely think so. I believe that the Hunters and Tia Marie, right, because what is that? That's a return to the past, the way that they invoke spirituality, but they embrace technological trickery, right? They understand how to make that drum vibrate with science. So it's not a rejection of the past. It's embracing both the past and the potential of mystic science almost, right? The way that she makes that drum beat with the recorder inside, the way that the lion seems to disappear and is replaced with the bull there. Um, It's all just a trap. And actually in the first chapter, I think this could be a metaphor for so many things that Wolf does. He's talking about traps, right? And um, he happens to say that they're all mechanical, in nature, right? That everything that you see there is always mechanical. Um, so I do think that was another of, of the themes that Wolf was trying to portray because what has happened in this novel is that people have turned away from reason, science, and even hope and faith. I think in Wolf, one of the strongest strains is that logic and reason are not incompatible with faith and mysticism and that the future does not have to totally reject the past. And the hunters in this, I think, perfectly represented that. But we never got to see Tia Marie go anywhere. But who was the one who introduced Castle to that? It was uh, Jaffet, right? It was it was his character there, Jaffet Trees. And so even Anna Trees' name, right, it has that resonance with not only the mother of Mary, right? But that tree thing kind of shows this natural outgrowth. And I think in Wolf, often the female characters are given these plant-like vegetable names because he is taking it from his own kind of biography, right? Rosemary. You have a man named Wolf married to a woman named Rosa Rosemary. And you see that over and over in his fiction where there's the female plant imagery and the male animal. Right. That's always kind of there. So the interesting thing about the entire setup here is that it's based on something that was like an illusion from the beginning. Right. Where Aries had almost no people. Right. And it's almost like the, the Martians are shooting in the dark and then, OK, well, we, we we're seeking out heat. Right. And we're going to talk to you. And so this kind of idea becomes a reality. And so many times in Wolf, you see where the imitation or, or the idea actually becomes something that's real. And so it might work in the opposite fashion as well. But the power of the mind to create something that has lasting significance is, I think, wrought throughout this novel as well. So usually in Wolf, there is a very specific placement of details that occur right next to each other that give us kind of a hint. So in this particular um, book, when he is teaching the inmates, right, and they first talk about Russian men coming in. So he's, he's, he's um, teaching them how to read. The remedial reading class possessed no textbooks. So John may do by having the students read in turn from his pocket-pressed manual, Reflecting that unless some of the sections had been written with this possible use in mind, Arlington's opinion of Pressman must be quite low. Stennis, 
one of the best pupils in the class, was reading now with obvious pride. Russia is a great nation, uh, larger in both uh, Stennis gulped, making his gray bristled Adam's apple bob up and down. He was a man of at least 60, but he'd clearly never seen the word confronting him before. Sound it out, John Castle said. It's perfectly phonetic. Extent and population than our own great country. Russia sends us men to teach us, and we send Russia men. Stennis sat down with relief. Extent had shaken him. John Castle hesitated momentarily before calling on the next reader. Was there something sinister in that last sentence? We send Russia men. Not to teach, the manual seemed to say. We just send them men. Could that be why so many prisoners were being herded toward the Atlantic coast? Outside, something howled, and one or two of the students moved nervously. Projecting reassurance, he said, that's only a wolf. Surely all of you have heard wolves before. So we have the calling of a wolf at a very ominous point where, okay, Russia is sending us this, and we're just sending them men for some reason. So that threat is invoked with the predatory howl. Mm. And this will occur so many times in wolf. Um, in The Wizard Knight, for example, every time Abel talks to uh, a girl who's sexually interested in him, right? The Norn hounds, or, or they, will, they will howl out there. And that's very significant. We won't get into that. But that repetition is always there. It's a pattern um, that wolf usually employ. So these kind of patterns would be something that a sloppy editor would destroy, right? Something like yeah. this, where he has this specific connection and it happens over and over and over again. And yet, um, I'm sure in the second half, anything like that, where the animal was howling or you saw the threat engendered in the same way would have been lost and destroyed. That's an excellent point. And one question I wanted to ask you is what, is going on with the multiple points of view in this story and and how I guess in the first half we're kind of really close to John Castle and then we move away from him. Do you think this was part of the rewriting process? The editor demanded, I don't know, that we get the story from different people's points of view or that um, this is an intentional choice? And if so, what are we to gain by multiple points of view in this novel? And then Wolf kind of gets away from this. Except maybe I, I'm thinking of the scene like with Oreb in Book of the Long Sun where we get like a different point of view briefly. But in this story, it's almost reads kind of contemporary with how fantasy is written today, which is with multiple points of view. But I just it, it felt so out of place in Wolf's uh, oeuvre in general that I just I'm hoping you can shed some light on why you think he went in this direction with this story. Definitely. And so because this is examining at its heart, right, what's best for the most people, I feel like he did want to show the effect of what was going on with multiple points of view. But I, I just don't know that it ever really came to fruition in the depth that he needed. So you actually have Castle riding someone else when he dies, right? That's one of the technologies in here that's almost like the possession in the Book of the Long Sun, right. where there's someone in your head sharing what you're experiencing. And so it's like this communion. Um, and so I do feel that that was one of the things that he was trying to emulate. I don't think that was a later imposition. I think this book was written with the idea of the people firmly in mind, what is best for the people, because 
when the captain agrees to undergo that kind of uh, thought experiment with with the Russians, right, and see their their indoctrination program, he's like, oh yeah, it's it's always what I believe that the people would go along with it, right? That it was to help them, it was for the best for them. And so you you see, I think, multiple points of view for people that are ultimately not important to the overall plot. But I think he was trying to show that that doesn't mean they're not important. Right. That they're still living human beings. Um, So I do think that that matches the political theme of this, which is the institution of kind of a more decentralized power that would still provide for people and would not um, bribe them not to work. Right. That universal basic income. And so who, who is it for? Right. It's for everyone. Right. I mean, and yeah, that's something we kind of didn't get to talk about in terms of ideology. Universal basic income today is something often associated with the left in American politics. But Wolf, uh, time and again, seems to think that there is something about universal basic income that is maybe, uh, I don't know, dignifying to uh, people. Uh, and I'm just, you know, wondering what. what in in this book, he said explicitly that like he wrote it when he was more of a, a William F. Buckley conservative, mm-hmm. um, but he's still. This book kind of ends with like, uh, well, we should have universal basic income because that's going to be the most dignifying thing for the most people. Yeah, it's explicitly an, an alternative to welfare. I mean, that's that's really what we're seeing here is that welfare is evil, but universal basic income will be redeeming for people. And, and we brought up in our discussion of the final chapters. The way that the context of these ideologies or policies and technologies uh, factor into whether or not they're viewed as good or bad. So one thing we did compare um, along with universal basic income and welfare was the use of the fist fink and the um, technology that allows the person to ride another person's consciousness and how they're kind of parallel technologies. But and, And even the way they're described... Is like, oh, like, well, if you get into trouble, you'll want to have this on because we'll be able to come get you. And one is very sinister because it's the Peace Guard or the Pressed uh, Corps. And the other one is uh, good because it's the Martians. And I don't know. I just wonder if that if there's anything you want to comment on uh, about that. Well, with the fist fink, my impression was that it was more like a tracking beacon, but not only that it was good because they could find them, but because he could use it to hit somebody, you know, like the physical, the physical force of of having, yeah, it's a tool of violence. Um, And so that was like why it was good, right? When he was, it's like, you can hit somebody if they get a little frisky with you. So um, there was, there was an innate difference. And also in the way that Wolf is presenting the welfare system as, okay, if you find a job, right, then it's going to go away and you're probably not going to be any better off or maybe just marginally better off. And that opportunity for graft that was there in, in the way this is set up for that small percentage from the people in charge. So it's, it's almost like the carceral system that Foucault talks about, right, where once you're in the system, they want to keep you there, right? It's just like right. this, this whole system that's built around having someone in a helpless position where they can't ever break free from it. And so I think that that's it definitely is a realistic depiction of some of the prison system things that we have in, in society right now in the United States. But I don't know that Wolf sees universal basic income in the same way because it's for everyone regardless of outcome. And there is kind of that cynical 
ideation at the end there where he's like, well, people are just going to use it on drugs and destroy themselves right away. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, we're not going to worry about them. Right. right? We They're won't just, count those losses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are like the acceptable losses. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the thing about Wolf that I think is so different than some other people who are ideologues, basically, and he's not, right, is that he's a very intelligent person who's also – mystical, eccentric, and an engineer of all things. So he understands the way things work. And so when you have somebody who understands mechanization is coming, right, it's going to take away jobs. There's going to be lost opportunities. There are some people who can never actually be um, productive members of society according to our, you know, ideals of what that actually entails. And so, you know, what, what do you do when there is no menial jobs left, right? How Knowing that companies create profit off of that and that they don't have to pay living wages to people, what's fair, what's right, what's just? And I think Wolf is always concerned with what is just for people. So it's not just conservative and liberal, right? There's a strain of mercy in his character, even though it's not about the secrets to his stories, right? He's pretty merciless there. But um, in terms of the way that he views human beings, right? And what they're worth. They're higher than they think they are, right? That's what he said. Um, so I, I do think that, that the idea of mercy and justice requires that if we're going to take away the opportunities for people to live and take care of themselves, we do have a responsibility to our brother human beings to take care of them, to make sure that they at least subsist. But welfare is bad because it encourages people to just settle, because, you know, if, if you – OK, I can find a minimum wage job or I can make almost as much money and have health care. OK, what am I going to do, right? Am I going to sit here or am I going to do something and struggle and have to work? So I, he does see it, I think, as, as a bribery from improving yourself, which is kind of, I think, almost like a sin, right? You're just kind of going to sit there and not improve yourself. Right, it's harmful to the soul. It, yeah. it, it yeah. takes away from human dignity and, and and a human sense of their own worth, which I think Wolf sees as destructive to the whole fabric of society. Well, since we've we've gotten back around to talking about the the, the politics in this book, there's a question that I've that, that's really been on my mind uh, since we first encountered it in IBAM, but we also find it sort of here, sort of here in Operation Aries, and this is the the Kennedys in. IBM, they are John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy are 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 sanctified. They've been canonized. They are saints. Uh, we also encounter the Kennedys mentioned in Sonia Crane Wesselman and Kitty, which is uh, significant for also being for also invoking universal basic income in its world building. But here in Operation Aries, we have Fitzpatrick Boyd uh, as the the president pro tem of this more or less communist government uh, that has that has usurped the constitutional government in America. And I have just wondered what Wolf's relationship, political relationship or ideological relationship with the Kennedys was. And maybe if you can shed any light on that for us, Mark. Unfortunately, I I really can't. Um, one of the you know, I can speculate that obviously as the first Catholic president, right? Kennedy was going to be important to people who genuinely considered themselves Catholic. And as somebody who was young and, and popular with a certain demographic, you know, who was still facing perhaps some discrimination just because of who he was, right? You have, you have so many memories at that time from the way that the, that the Irish were treated in, you know, 1919, 1920s, 1930s. And so you have someone who even though he seemed to be wealthy and affluent, who is definitely 
a minority for having access to that kind of power at that time, right? He's unique and special. And so I think that obviously Wolf would empathize with with that aspect of him. But, you know, I really can't say that, that Wolf was a big fan of Kennedy or, or not. He's never mentioned him in any correspondence with me. Um, I can only go off of the way that my grandmother felt about, you know, Kennedy and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and those things with that kind of traditional Catholic, but still for the, the little person, right? That kind of uh, political ideology that, that she had as well. That reminds me a little bit of Wolf, but I can't say that it's the same. Well, I had much the same reaction. My, my, uh, my family background is Southside Irish, and uh, you know there were pictures of the Kennedys in my grandparents' house that I remember seeing, you know, as a as a as a as a young child. But it struck me in IBEM when we first encountered them, right? That that because they are canonized, I just read it that way. I was thinking about, well, yeah, that's. I think my grandpa probably felt the same way. Wolf is a Catholic, so this makes sense to me that this was a big deal for him seeing a Catholic become president and another one almost become president of the United States. But then when we get to Operation Ares, where the the bad guy is given this Irish name, um, I, I had you know I just had questions about it. Okay, but he's not entirely bad because at the end, there's every indication that he's going to be redeemed. Yes, exactly. Right? right. He's going to become the next president. He's made the deal and he's looking at the bear right at the end there. He's playing with that bear symbol um, of, of kind of glory to come. So I don't think he's the bad guy. It's just that these these authority figures are kind of corrupted by having authority, but it's not necessarily irrevocable, right? There's always the chance that you can redeem yourself. And so all of this is so interesting in operationaries because even though there's all these bad guys, are, are any of them truly evil? You know, like Huggins and, and um, Boyd seem to kind of reconcile almost. They're like, okay, we're on the same side now. And actually the way that the United States is going to um, – ensure that its currency is honored is 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 really crazy right at the end there where they're like well we're just going to get russia and china to compete against each other and so it's actually relying on russia and china just as much as letting them in in the first place so it's not like they got rid of them right there's this global balance that has to be maintained for there to be any kind of value to their monetary uh, supply and so you know that's such an interesting ending i don't know whether it's possible i'm not an economist i don't know that i even understood that the the the, the economics behind that but it was so fascinating. It's almost like, okay, in order for there to be this good nation, you have to have the support, endorsement, and maybe the redemption of forces that are outside of that, almost like it is a global, universal whole. Yeah, I, I think the, the the kind of end gamble of this novel is, is insane. Um, but uh, but I, it's also kind of brings to light that, that yeah, we, we also found that Boyd wasn't the enemy in like the classic, you know, Darth Vader story trope sense. But there is a, uh, something that we've come across a lot in, in, in the early fiction of Wolf. That is that this sense of laziness, of allowing things to go on um, and personal responsibility is the key to fixing that laziness that allows kind of the disintegration of, of civilization and society. And, Boyd's an interesting character because he's he's a he is a, a figure of uh, an ideal. He's the president of the United States. He holds a symbolic position of power, and it, it's interesting 
to me to hear you talk about him as if he's a human being, <laughs> which I feel like he's not well represented as that in the book. And maybe that's something we've lost in the editing and that Wolf is actually showing the same sense of of mercy, uh, charity, and justice that he shows to other characters, that uh, no matter their position, they can be redeemed, even if it it is one of of privilege and authority. Definitely, right? Because personal responsibility, this is is something else that I I did want to talk about, and it, it goes into kind of determinism and free will. And, you know, there are so many people who look at Wolf as a kind of naturalistic, deterministic writer. And, and the chief among those is um, Peter Wright in his uh, attending Daedalus. And so when he's talking about Operation Ares, um, he kind of has a quote that comes directly from Wolf that I think is, is, is fascinating because I almost feel like Wolf tells people what they want to hear to some degree, right, in interviews and things like that. So I'd like to read that because I think it relates to this. Um, So this is about manipulation, right? It says um, why there's so much manipulation and and false ideas, you know, that are running around in Operation Aries that people seem kind of to be predetermined by it. So I suppose it comes from the idea that we are, in fact, manipulated, and we all are. Some of us are willing to acknowledge God as the godlike power in our lives. Even those who are not are manipulated not only by God, but a whole host of subsidiary powers, political, economic, and so on. We tend to think that we have free will. In the mass, we're very predictable. There's very little difference between traffic flowing on a highway and a liquid flowing through a pipe. They act in about the same way. That predictability is the basis for exploitation. So here he's saying that we think we have free will, but at the same time, right, as a Catholic, he has to believe in free will. It's just that sometimes our circumstances make those choices very difficult. And so, you know, this quote always struck me as very uncharacteristic of Wolf. Um, but I almost feel like he assimilates some of the, the temper of the person who's talking to him when he answers these questions. So Peter Wright's whole approach is naturalistic, kind of that things are determined and that's the way it's going to be. Um, but in another video interview with Wolf, where he's with Isaac Asimov and Harlan Ellison. Maybe you guys are familiar with it. There's a scene where he says, um, he says, hey, you can be a saint or you can be the worst MFer in the world, right? He actually drops that that bomb on there where he's saying that you can be this, you could be great or evil. And I think that's actually Wolf's real idea about, you know, the possibility for human beings. But sometimes, obviously, our environment has such a huge impact, and we are influenced so adversely by things. So Fitzpatrick Boyd, obviously influenced by the power he had, the position of America as kind of a vastly disintegrated dream that had started to fade, right? So he has certain responsibilities, and he has some small power, but how does he maintain that? And so I do feel that he is a little bit trapped But I think free will has to be there in any wolf story. I think that's one of the central tenets, that even though we're kind of deceived by our subjectivity, right, there's still that idea that there's an innate spiritual essence that has to be somewhat free from that physical outside um, circumstance that we're experiencing, even though not everybody succeeds in freeing themselves from that. I, I do want to ask you a question about maybe the significance of this novel and Wolf's development as a novelist, but also maybe just as a storyteller in general. I think we teased that uh, a lot of this novel 
kind of shows up again in Book of the Long Sun. For me, that was like something that was really clear to me when I was reading it. And as Glenn and I have both kind of been on the record saying Long Sun, at least the first book in the Book of the Long Sun is one of my favorite novels of all time. So I think there's a lot here that's repeated. There's a lot of the similar kind of propaganda moves like Silk for Call Day, you know, uh, <laughs> where, where it has nothing to do with Silk's actual <laughs> motivations or intentions as an actor in, in the drama of the story. Um, but it gets done regardless of his desires. We see that a lot of the kind of operationaries propaganda being passed around when there is no Ares to speak of. Um, Castle is a figure, as you brought up, um, who has similar uh, fortunes or misfortunes befall him as Silk does. But apart from maybe prefiguring in some ways things that Wolf recalls in Book of the Long Sun, how do you view this book in overall significance of Wolf's work? Well, definitely. I think it definitely belongs with a strain of social conscience in his short stories. And a lot of them are ones that you've already talked about. There seems to be, um, and ones that you haven't covered, like um, Blue Mouse, um, slaves of silver, the rubber bend, all of those kind of involve a future that I think could stem from this or are near it in time, even um, hour of trust. Those are all related to very specific problems in the United States that's local and that seems to be inspired by kind of the civic unrest of the 1960s and 1970s. And so I feel like eventually he had said enough about that and that his art really flourished after that. It's not that I think Operation Ares is bad, but I do think that his later art is far more universal, right? Because it's not about America anymore. It's about something far more significant than our political problems or universal basic income. It's about the soul. What, it is, it, what is it to be a human being, right? What's redemption? What's mercy? Um, what is the numinous spiritual mystical reality that transcends our physical state? So I do feel that he moved past this, but that those early stories were still kind of mired in the science fiction that he read growing up. So even though the new wave, right, had kind of been percolating in the 60s and 70s um, and Damon Knight's Orbit anthology series had some very artistic um, entries, especially from Wolf, right? The people who were writing at this time in 1969, 1970, you had Joanna Russ, Thomas Dish, R.A. Lafferty, Kate Wilhelm, Harlan Ellison, Robert Silverberg, um, Delaney, I think, was already just kind of taking off by then as well. So you had very stylistically aware and very talented practitioners stretching the bounds of SF. And I feel like Operation Ares is more like a callback to, you know, the 50s, uh, maybe not necessarily the golden age of SF, but when it was concerned with what was going on right now, right? And what was the possibility and what was the immediate future going to be? And I think Wolf realized that in order for there to be lasting appeal to his work, he moved beyond that. And also, his early work is by and large science fiction. By the time you get to the 80s, he's moving into fantasy fairly heavily. Um, you know, you have the Soldier series, the Book of the New Sun. There are fantastic mystical elements, even though it is ostensibly science fiction. I think a better definition is that science fantasy, right? So we're not bound strictly by, okay, this could happen tomorrow, right? It can be beyond that. So I feel like he'd done enough in this vein and it was time to move on, but he needed something to start with. And I don't think it's a bad novel. I just think it was, it was butchered by the length requirement because back then those science fiction novels were expected to be shorter, 
Yeah, is there any any chance that we'll ever recover the the full version as Wolf intended it? I I really doubt that. I don't think it exists anymore. I don't think Wolf has it. I would be surprised if it's lying somewhere. Um, in my correspondence with him, he did say that he wrote a novel before this that never saw publication. Of it, he said, no doubt it had way too much plot, but he wouldn't say anything else about it. So, I mean, <laughs> back then manuscripts got lost. It's not like the digital age. I mean, still things get lost now, but it's a lot easier to replicate. I mean, who's going to retype all of this stuff or make those mimeographs of it or whatever, you know, if you don't have infinite time and purple ink there. So, um, I, I do think that that's probably lost forever and that we'll never see those little spaces, but we can still see the outlines, right? It's still a wolf novel. And so many of those set pieces resonate with what wolf does, right? Whether it be, uh, the house where delight lives or, or that scene with Tia Marie where the lion jumps and it winds up being a mechanical trap. I do feel that that actually elucidates long sun very well, where you have this mystery that can be explained with purely mechanical ends. But the difference between Wolf in Operation Ares and Wolf later is that he never actually tells you how the mechanical day-to-day workings actually go about. He leaves it a mystery. Yeah, we were we were pretty surprised, but I think also pretty pleased to to see so much of the Book of the Long Sun prefigured or maybe even foreshadowed here. It really, you know, you pointed out earlier that that John Castle and Patera Silk share an awful lot of DNA in common, uh, and that was pretty great for us to find. Yeah, I also think that the Martians here that this is like the first view we get of the autarchs in in book of the new sun they have like elongated limbs and they're taller and there's there's something going on here that is in this novel that explains so much of what we see later on perhaps if this is indeed the same earth uh that this some of the solar cycle uh inhabits i i do want to talk about that you know the exultant class you're talking about there i do think there's more sense there's more sense that they are kind of genetically engineered to some degree because the long limbs of the Martians is obviously about that Martian gravity that they've grown up on there, I think. But there's there's other creatures on Mars. Now, this is something that I don't know if you'll ever get to this story or not, but Wolf has a couple terraforming Mars stories, and one of them was very early. It's in Young Wolf. It's called The Mountains Like Mice. And in it, you see the same anti-science sentiment, even though this one is set purely on Mars. So it could almost be the same universe as Operation Ares, except instead of like um, the advanced engineering What's taken over on Mars are the biological sciences. So they've brought back all of the old species, uh, mystical, spiritual myths, you know, like like the serpents and stuff. They seem to be straight from like learning in Hydra or whatever. You know, they're all mystical and, and mythic instead of these these moles, which might also kind of fit into some mythic framework. But the most interesting thing about the way that this story was set up, the mountains like mice, and this is something I did want to talk about in regards to the chess match as well, is that Wolf loves to play with scale with his symbols. And so in this, you have a young man who's coming of age, and they send him out into the wilderness, and they paint him purple. And they're like, if you want to end your test out there at any time – here is something you can do to remove the, the purple stain on your body. It'll be over, and then you know you can blend back in. But until you finish what you need to do, you know you can't you can't come back. Um, and so, 
this story, the mountains like mice, I was thinking about what's the significance of this, of this purple stain. And then I realized it's, it's, it's a system that's been established by biologists, the soft sciences, um, you know, really not, not engineers or mechanics. And I was driving, um, one of those long commutes between work. And I'm like, my gosh, when I was doing my biochemistry undergrad, Whenever we started a cell invasion assay, we had to stain the cells, um, often with a purple dye, crystal violet. And I realized that's exactly what it was. It was an experiment, and they were tracking him with the purple dye. It had just been writ large and macrocosmically. And Wolf does this all the time. The chess game in this expands to Castle moving all over the board. Um, you see it in stories like Peritonitis, even The Wizard Knight, where small things get blown up and large things get reduced. And so one of his great stories, how I lost the second world war and turned back the German invasion in that world war two becomes a board game that people in an alternate reality are playing. But in order for them to win their racetrack that they, that they're doing, they have to have a race right with the, um, the, the German and the Japanese model cars there. The racetrack becomes a transistor. It works on the principle of the way that uh, energy would flow through a transistor. So Wolf blows up the transistor and he reduces World War II to a board game. So he loves to play with these symbols. I think he did the same thing with that strand of um, DNA in House of Ancestors, right? That he blew it up. And then he, he kind of shrinks other things. And so he loves to play with scale that way. And I think that Operation Ares was intended to do the same thing. I just don't know that we can see it as, it, as we have it. That's extraordinarily enlightening. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Mark. That opening gambit where he's talking about a trap being mechanical, I do feel that Wolf loves to marry mysteries – with mechanical solutions. I feel like that's just in his makeup. He loves to do that. And so when when we're reading Operation Ares, it's obvious. When we're reading his later works, I feel like it's hidden, um, that he doesn't actually reveal the mechanistic ends that allow things to happen. But I feel like that's always there, highly engineered fiction. And so I've heard it said that he doesn't write hard science fiction or, or scientifically accurate fiction, but the fiction itself is built almost like an engineering principle, I feel, that the way that he structures it is so important to the meaning, and I feel like Ares was intended to be that way, and I think it almost comes off, especially in the first half. I believe the first half was edited by Wolf, the second half by the Berkeley um, editor there, and so I feel there's a difference, right? That first half still reads pretty well. When you get to the second half, I always find my attention starting to stray as he jumps from situation to situation. So I feel like even though this is an, I'm not going to say an amateur, but kind of a Tyro effort from Wolf, his writing style was still sufficient to pull it together, even in the face of a merciless axe you know that he doesn't wield <laughs> right. right there's still some quality in there and he's still doing things that he always does it just doesn't seem fully realized and i don't blame him at all right it's most realized i think in the scene with tia marie in the in the, the house of of uh where only delight lives yes that's right but yeah i think the second half is clearly edited for plot and we recognize this and, and since we were doing two chapters at a time we totally noticed there's a major shift from kind of what you see in wolf even if it is an early effort then later on when it is just hacked away to become plot 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 
And I, I really enjoyed chapter one. To me, this that was actually one of the I don't know, most pleasant things that I had read recently. In fact, I, I even wrote to Mark after reading the first chapter to say, I don't know why everyone says this book is not very good, because I really enjoyed the first chapter. Having having seen the second half of it, I now understand what people are saying. And, and I do rue the fact that we don't get the complete draft, because I do have to feel that, that, that so much of the wolfiness of those chapters is what was excised in order to to, to keep the plot, which is what the publisher was interested in. Right. And I think right. we get so much of that, though, in Book of the Long Sun, which is like what I enjoyed about reading Operationaries was how much it gets reclaimed and repurposed in Book of the Long Sun in the most incredible ways. Definitely. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful series. I mean, the whole solar cycle is just sublimely awesome. Um, one thing that I do think also... I feel like Wolf repurposed that first chapter for some parts of Seven American Nights, which is just a fabulous, fabulous novella. I mean, I, I think it's one of the best things Wolf ever wrote. And um, that's that's saying a lot because he's written so many wonders, especially at the novella length. Almost every novella that he wrote was great. But you have the, the animals lurking outside, you know, waiting for civilization and kind of America beginning to decay. So I feel like he didn't totally abandon that idea that he had in his head but um seven american knights took it to places that this novel could never go um so yeah i I feel like he still used that first chapter a little bit in the setup there so it didn't disappear entirely it wasn't a lost cause and like everything in 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 wolf you know he didn't get to do the third volume of um the soldier series when he wanted to um and there's different versions as to whether his editor asked him not to or whether he didn't want to he says it was the editor the editor says it was him but who knows at this point but instead we got book of the long sun and my personal favorite is actually book of the short sun which i think is the best thing he's ever written but not necessarily something that can be appreciated by everyone right i feel like it has a specific audience in mind um, and that you have to do a little bit of work to appreciate the, the emotional heights of, of Book of the Short Sun, which, which I, I found you know, really worked for me. Um, but I think New Sun is justly the, the, the end game, right, of what's going to happen when all these institutions decay, um, when, when nothing seems to work anymore. Is, is this really going to be this universal basic income forever? And Wolf takes it far into the future and I think creates something that will will last because it's it's outside of our, our current situation in time. We can easily see that end of time um, dystopian, you know, not a dystopia really, but that, that end of time apocalyptic future that threatens us. And that's always going to be a threat now. Well, I think now that we're we're looking forward to the solar cycle, I think that's going to do it for Operation Ares. Mark, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, guys. My pleasure. Well, listeners, be sure to check out Mark's books and videos. As you've just experienced for yourself, he is a wonderful, uh, fantastic scholar. You should be reading his books. You should be watching his YouTube videos. And we'll have links for all of those in the show notes. Yeah, again, Glenn and I rely heavily upon Mark's work in Between Shadow and Light. And as Mark mentioned, just having the conversation is what's important to us. It's it's having this conversation about Wolf and the discourse. And he is always there in the background of what Glenn and I are talking about. So make sure you check out his work. Well, Glenn, I don't know about you, but Operationaries felt like a really big 
task for us and, and, and we've completed it. So now that we're done, what are we doing next? Yeah, that's a great question, Brandon. As listeners know, our, at this point, we are turning our short story coverage over to our Patreon patrons to decide what we're going to cover in a poll. But because you and I record a little bit in the future, we actually haven't taken that poll yet. And so we don't know what the next story is going to be. We will know very shortly, and we will make sure that that is plastered all over social media uh, so that people are able to, to read along with us. And of course, we're very excited to see what it is that listeners would like us to cover. But I can say that the next thing that you and I are going to record is January's patron episode on Patreon, which is going to be the short story, The Star, by classic SF writer H.G. Wells. That's right. You can get that and our other patron episodes for just a dollar a month. We've recorded some great conversations. We've covered some great works by Vonnegut. We've done an episode of Joss Sweden. You and Valerie on your Star Trek podcast have done some fantastic uh, work as well, covering an episode of Buffy uh, and some other cool Star Trek episodes. So we hope that you'll be interested in listening to those. And I'm really excited to do the H.G. Wells stories as well. But... Until next time, listeners, we greet you and we say farewell. <laughs>